Welcome to a Monday night edition of Tiski Sour. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. We have four kind of bizarre stories for you today. Some of them are bizarre. Anyway, working from home in the Taliban, exploding Land Rovers, mansions in Marbella, and His Royal Highness Prince Andrew. So some of them are bizarre, some of them um, just outright kind of nasty. Let's get straight on. In his speech to party conference last week, Boris Johnson gave this appeal to people who worked at home throughout the pandemic. As we come out of COVID, our towns and cities are going to be buzzing with life because we know that a productive workforce needs the spur that only comes with face-to-face -face meetings and water cooler gossip. If young people are to learn on the job in the way that they always have and must, we will and must see people back in the office. That was Boris Johnson pleasing the Tory faithful. This weekend, his cabinet colleagues took the frets up a gear. An unnamed senior cabinet minister has told the Mail on Sunday that homeworking didn't just prevent gossip being exchanged at water coolers. It left Britons at the mercy of the Taliban. So the Mail writes that vital time was lost. The claim that they're making is that vital time um, was lost because civil servants couldn't access the relevant documents um, because it was security protected and so therefore um, people were not airlifted out of Kabul airport. That's not the only attack that was made on civil servants that was related to war. Inside the mail on Sunday, former Work and Pension Secretary Ian Duncan Smith invoked, you guessed it, World War II and the Blitz. That was to pressure people back to their daily commute. This is a particularly ridiculous article. It was headlined, in the 1940s they kept coming to the office even when Hitler's bombs were raining down. In the piece, IDS decries the empty tables at his favourite Italian restaurant in Whitehall and claims there can be no question that being together makes us more productive, particularly in the face of complex or seemingly intractable problems. Meanwhile, studies now suggest that social isolation during the pandemic has led to a troubling increase in depression and other forms of mental illness. For the sake of government itself, our civil servants must get back into the office after this terrible COVID hiatus. We could talk for a long time, a whole show, in fact, about why IDS should not be taken seriously as an advocate for mental health. He was, of course, in charge of the DWP, so the Department of Work and Pensions, at the high point of austerity, causing untold misery to people. Just one example, according to this study, his degrading fit-to-work assessments could be linked to 590 suicides. This guy should not be talking about you should go back to, to work because of your mental health. He does not care about your mental health. We'll talk about what he probably does care about later on in the show. First of all, while IDS's injunction to return to the office might be one of the more offensive Tory interventions, it is not the most ridiculous. That award goes to former Minister Jake Berry, who told a fringe meeting at Tory conference, we absolutely have to get the civil service back into the office. It's time to end the Whitehall woking from home culture. Sorry, working from home culture. But it really is majority woking from home. Ash, I'm going to want your, your broader take on this, this attack on people home working in a second. First of all, do you have any idea at all what point was he trying to make? In a sense, yes, Jake Berry is a blithering idiot. And what he's found is a word which neatly encapsulates all the things that the Tories don't like. Um, I saw a meme earlier today, which is, you know, how do you tell the difference between woke and leveling up? It's, well, do you like this thing? If not, it's woke. If you do like it, it's actually leveling up. 
So it's these two kind of like broad floating signifiers which operate within uh, conservative verbiage. And it's not really meant to have any coherent political meaning. I mean, what's woke about working from home? What has that got to do with pronouns or vegan sausage rolls or, you know, androgynous dungarees for sale at ASOS, right? Nothing, but nothing to do with any of those things. The real threat here, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in more detail, I think it's, you know, threefold. One is the impact of working from home on the commercial lettings market. So in 2020, demand for uh, commercial office space in London uh, collapsed by 50% uh, compared to year-on-year trends. Um, You've also got, you know, the kind of uh, ripple effect of that, right? So then if you have, you know, reduced footfall in central London because of office space, then you've also got fewer people going to Pret and all that kind of thing. So that kind of um, commuter-oriented economy, which also, by the way, isn't good. No one goes, oh, what's the best part of my day? It's getting like a soggy avo wrap from Pret. Um, you know, people are quite happy to support their local CAF, um, you know, local businesses, you know, close to their home, and, and they feel really good about that kind of thing. The minute you shift power into the hands of workers and away from rentier interest. That's a bad thing in Tory land. So why there might be a bit of uh, lip service paid to increased flexibility, dynamic economies, blah, 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 ways of structuring a workplace. Ultimately, they don't like it when workers get to shape their own conditions. All right. That's a bad thing for Tory ideology. Then the third thing is really um, aiming this kind of language squarely at retirees who, despite having bought their own house for £1.50 at that beautiful time when wages and and property prices were just like this, they're like, uh, life should be miserable for everybody else because I suffered also. You know, I could barely afford that second home. There is an age element here, both in terms of the drive to get people back to work and who is supporting it. The Conservatives are making out that this push to get people to go back to work is to the benefit of young people. That was a claim made by Boris Johnson in that speech we we showed you at the beginning, sorry, and also speaking to Nick Ferrari last week on LBC. We are certainly encouraging people to to get back to work in the normal way. And And, and I think that's a good thing. And let me tell you why I think it's a good thing. I think that for, for, for young people in particular, it is really essential to be in a... Uh, if you're going to learn in, uh, on the job, you can't just do it on Zoom. No, you've got to be. You've got to be. You've got to be able. To, you've got to be able to come in and 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 sit at the. You've got to, you know, know what everybody else is talking about. Yes. Otherwise, you're going to be gossiped about, and uh, you're going to lose out. And uh, God forbid you'd ever well, be gossiped about. Well, you know what I mean, Nick. And and, and uh, you, you need to be. I would never partake yeah, in no. that. Can I assure you? <laughs> you know, you, you need to be there, and you need to have the the stimulus of exchange and competition. And, you're not a fan of Zoom. That was a, a very smug Boris Johnson speaking to a rather smug Nick Ferrari. And they were both suggesting that young people are better off in the office, Boris Johnson, because young people will be gossiped about if they continue to work from home. It turns out, however, that young people aren't particularly keen to go back into the office. And when it comes to different age groups, they are the least keen. YouGov recently polled the public on whether the government should encourage people back into their workplaces. They found that among the general population, 45% believe they shouldn't and only 36% that they should. 
Opposition to any rush back to work is also particularly strong among 25 to 49 year olds. Um, so they back um, continuing to work from home by 55 to 27 percent, or at least don't want the government to be pushing one or the other. And it's only once you get to people who are older than working age, where you see a clear majority in favour of a government campaign to get people back into the office. For people who are over 65, 47% of people want a government campaign to get people to return to their workplaces, and 36% are opposed. Ash, I think you've sort of intimated that you think this might be sort of the sadism of the British public, where people like people to be miserable so long as it's not themselves. I suppose in defence, you could say that maybe... People who are over 65, they have the most experience. They are the people who know how they got by in the workplace and think they, they would regret it now if they hadn't had that chance to gossip at, at the water cooler. Which one do you think it is? I'm not saying that there are absolutely no downsides to a shift towards working from home. If you're somebody who doesn't have great broadband access or if you're somebody who lives in overcrowded housing, uh, if working from home more means that you essentially take up uh, more of the domestic burden than you were before, um, you're somebody who suffers from being isolated and that really has detrimental impact. Obviously, you know, working from home uh, isn't the best thing for you. But this thing about kind of castigating flexibility as itself evidence that you're work shy, it just really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. There hasn't been a massive loss of productivity uh, with people working from home. Lots of people who are working age who are struggling because of things like the cost of travel, the cost of childcare being a massive one. They go, well, actually, overall, what this gives me is an improved standard of living rather than, you know, just about surviving that like maybe I can get a takeaway or something once a week and that's fucking lit. Um, you know, it, it, it's actively improving their lives. But like I said, I do think that particularly amongst the Tory base, there is this kind of, uh, you know, cultural affect, which is a complete level of delusion about one's own experiences. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, with regards to that insane Blitz Spirit article, um, you know, kind of remembering their own experiences as uh, much more shaped by hardship than they actually were. And then saying everyone else must suffer like that because otherwise they've gone soft. Um, whereas really before the pandemic, and you know, this is still the case, you tended to have younger workers who are in those frontline roles where you were actually less able uh, to take advantage of flexible working or working from home. And it tend to be older workers, those who are at management levels, who could much more easily incorporate a degree of flexibility into their working day. So there's a kind of irony about being the most opposed to it and before the pandemic, being of an age group which was most likely to be able to benefit from it. Do you think, I mean, because it's often said, isn't it, that, you know, what people really want is for their children to be better off than themselves, you know, for, and, and that's the sort of, you know, the, the dream of social mobility. And when that is stunted, people sort of say that's, that's when you get populism and things because people don't see um, their, their children benefiting from the system or themselves benefiting from the system. They're less, you know, invested in it. It does seem like we're kind of seeing in contemporary British culture kind of the opposite, which is that people really resent the idea that anyone might have a better time than they did. So obviously, yeah, I think to great detriment, there's been enormous pressure for people to go to work nine to five or longer for a very long period of time. Yes, it has a few upsides, but it has shed loads of downsides. We've now had a pandemic, this extraordinary global event, which meant that this routine was broken. Nearly everyone who partook in that shift to working from home wants to keep at least some of it. 
very, very little demand to, to go back to the office five days a week. As you see um, from those polls we showed you, nearly everyone of working age or the vast majority of people of working age really don't want to be pushed back into the workplace. Yet the drive for it is from older people who no longer vote, but who overwhelmingly vote conservative. So it does, you know, it, it, it seems like a fairly frustrating block, let's say, to, to political change, to improving work-life balances is people who are sort of looking at this and saying, no, we didn't get that, so you shouldn't get that either. We probably shouldn't belabor this point because I don't think if we do get pushed back into the office, by the way, I'm clearly in, in my office right now, but Navarro Media, we are very flexible when it comes to this. We're in and out as and, as and when we feel um, we need to. Working from home, very much welcome. But as I say, yeah, I don't think people over 65 are the main drivers of this often obscene push back to the workplace invoking the Taliban and the Blitz. Um, as Ash mentioned earlier on, it's probably material interests which are driving this move. And in particular, the interests of commercial landlords. That's because there are no there is no one else who would lose out more from a dramatic shift and a long-term shift to working from home than commercial landlords, people who own office space. And while that group might be numerically small, not many people own offices in city centres. They also happen to be key donors to the Tory party. The FT report that landlords provided one quarter of funds given to the Tories since 2019 and their largest individual funder is a commercial landlord. Ash, it's a question we come back to over and over again on this show. The stranglehold that a small group of incredibly unproductive people, people who just lay claim to bits of land and then demand proportions of other people's income for the right to, you know, reside there or work there, they have such an enormous grip over our politics that is really stopping, you know, even the most moderate change. Like people say, we all overwhelmingly want a better work-life balance. The Tories have a few multi-billion pound donors who own office space near Euston and, and suddenly we're all getting bullied back into the workplace. Well, I think this is something which is really interesting about uh, this iteration of the Conservative Party. So that they, what they've worked out is that it's possible to produce and encourage a kind of network of images, narratives and cultural signifiers, which can try and tie together the interests of the billionaire rentier class and that section of homeowning baby boomers, both in traditionally uh, labor constituencies and also, you know, some uh, in urban areas as well, and the classic kind of rural uh, contingent of Tory voters, right? So that's the thing that they've really worked for, is how can you make that generation of homeowners essentially the electoral wing of rentier capital? And I think they've done that uh, very well. But what it doesn't anticipate is when you have these moments of kind of, um, historical happenstance, right? Something like a pandemic, which isn't really in anyone's control how and when that happens, um, is that this comes along. And what it exposes is that actually within capital, there are some competing interests. The interest of the rentier class, the people who own all of these huge property portfolios in London, in Manchester, in Edinburgh, in Birmingham, those they don't have the same material 
interest, financial interest as the small business owner, person who's trying to make a startup work, you know, the guy who runs the restaurant down the street, right? These are actually diametrically opposing interests. And that's why when we're talking about uh, this conflict over working from home, it's not really a conflict between employers and employees because for lots of employers they think what is the single most unproductive use of my revenue right it's rents right it gets higher and higher every year i'm not actually getting more for it and imagine what i could do if i you know put that back into my business it's a very unproductive use of capital and what the pandemic has exposed is a sort of strange potential alliance you know just in this kind of small interest between employers uh employees against the rentier class and that's why they're going so hard on you know if you work from home you're basically al-qaeda what about the blitz you know they didn't go home yeah because german bombs weren't contagious you idiot um and also because you needed like factories and shit for the war effort and also i'm not really sure what the broadband connections were like in 1941 but i imagine they're a bit patchy at best um it's, you know it's entirely silly but what it's trying to do is again um, strengthen those imaginative connections which have formed a kind of political block between rentier capital and homeowning baby boomers. I mean, also that there are lots of bunkers in Whitehall. You know, I don't, I don't really buy this thing that people were like at significant risk of getting bombed in those buildings and they just went to those buildings anyway. I think, I, I think the, the Nazis didn't really bomb the centre of Westminster anyway because they kind of wanted to take it over when they, when they, when they won. You know, so once they invaded yeah, Britain, they so wanted much. to use like the House of like Parliament. And, exactly. It was, in, it was industrial spaces, right? Mainly in, in yeah. East London and South London, working class parts of the city. Um, let's talk very briefly just about this hold that the Blitz narrative has on our politics. We might be able to get up that Ian Duncan Smith headline up just one more time, just because it's so ridiculous. Um, so it's Ian Duncan Smith. In the 1940s, they kept coming to the office even when Hitler's bombs were raining down. Um, I was also reminded... Um, well, not reminded, there was a, a very similar um, headline in the Times this time about the shortages. We're not going to get this one up for you. Um, but it's Claire Foges, who always has the most ridiculous articles um, in the Sunday Times or the Monday Times, who knows. And she says, we have got used to a degree of chaos during the pandemic and many secretly enjoy the chance to show some blitz spirit, which is her argument why we shouldn't bet on a hard winter toppling Boris Johnson. Asked you by this analysis that people were willing to go through shortages themselves, or would that sort of go against the sadistic side of British politics, which is that people only really like other people to suffer? One of the, I think, biggest myths in politics is that there's such a thing as rational self-interest. No, our self-interest can be destructive. It can be irrational. It can be motivated purely by emotion and vibes and feeling. It's got nothing to do with with what's going on outside in the world. So I think that there is something in that. Um, and I do think that there is quite a powerful strain within the kind of British collective unconscious, which is that, well, suffering is inevitable. So what we can do is divide that suffering into either, you know, the suffering which ennobles us somehow, and it's usually tying us back to an imagined uh, past, right? One where World War II was sort of, um, you know, dominated by like cheeky chappies playing about in the rubble rather than like bombs dropping on civilian areas and fucking like mass death um, and saying, oh, well, you know, the suffering's a bit like that. 
or looking at other kinds of suffering, the suffering of undocumented migrants, people at Yarl's Wood, people who are recipients of welfare and have had to endure some really degrading and inhumane treatment and going, ah, your suffering actually marks you out as um, unworthy, as illegitimate, as a social parasite, something and so forth. Now, of course, this way of thinking about suffering and pain is deeply contradictory, but then again, you know, welcome to Britain. So I do think that there's something in that, which is that there's almost this fantasy amongst, by the way, a generation who were not there for World War II, right? Who were not born even for World War II. It's like you were born in 1958, all right? You had a pretty good run of things who keep appealing to this past where, you know, men were men and bin men were real hard. And, you know, um, the Anderson shelter in the backyard was, you know, basically a palace. So why are you complaining about how much it costs to rent a former council house? Um, who keep appealing to that because it disguises their own, quite frankly, very coddled experience of the world. We should say at this point, because I, I know when, when we do you know, generational analysis, sometimes people quite rightly say, stop trying to tar all people born in the 50s and 60s with the same brush. And I absolutely would not want to do that. Many of our most valued supporters, most valued regular viewers are, of course, in their 50s, 60s and 70s. Some of the most passionate socialists I know are. But it just so happens that in this country right now, sort of class is in many ways articulated via age. You can see it in all all polls and, and it is in many ways pensioners who are, who are keeping the Conservatives in power, which is not to blame the pensioners, it's just to say that there definitely is something going on there. Let's go straight on to our next story. TV star and wildlife campaigner Chris Packham has revealed that hate campaigners have blown up a Land Rover outside his home. The arsonists, who remain unidentified, drove to the presenter's front gate before setting fire to the vehicle and leaving in a getaway car. The subsequent explosion set fire to the gate and fence of Packham's property in Hampshire's New Forest. Luckily, no one was hurt. Packham explained what happened in a video he uploaded the morning after the incident. So on Thursday night, Friday morning, 12.30, two hooded and masked men drove a vehicle right up to my gate and set it on fire. They were fully aware of the CCTV that was in place. They took great pains to hide themselves. The car exploded and was rapidly and efficiently dealt with by Hampshire Fire and Rescue and the police were in attendance. And as ever, they did a fantastic job, but not before it had caused extensive damage to my property. It's not the first action that we've seen here. Dead animals are... Uh, frequent occurrence. You will remember in 2019 that dead birds were tied to the gate, dead foxes and badgers, and it's continued. Indeed, only the other day I found a dead badger thrown in front of the house. And it's got to the point that I didn't even bother to tell my partner Charlotte and stepdaughter Megan about it because it's become normal. But as someone has pointed out to me, this is far from normal. It isn't normal to come home and find dead animals thrown in front of your property, but that's what's been happening. But now it's escalated because they've taken to damaging that property. And I wonder where it's going. I mean, what happens next? Do they burn the house down? Do they beat up my stepdaughter? Do they cut the brake lines on my partner's car? Or do they come for me directly? I mean, are they going to kill me at some point? I will, of course, just carry on 
because I have no choice. I cannot and will not let your intimidation sway me from my course. And that's why I don't really understand why you would do it. That was Chris Packham explaining what sounds like a really horrific campaign of intimidation. So who's responsible for it? Well, no arrests have been made, but Packham is clear he believes it to be the work of people opposed to his environmental campaigning. So he is quoted in the mirror as saying, I get up every morning and my underlying mission is to try and make the world a better place for wildlife and people. That's it. I think it's relatively straightforward. I do campaign against fox hunting because I don't think it's great for wildlife and it distresses 86% of the population. I do campaign against unsustainable and illegal shooting. I do campaign about these things and I draw attention to them, but I don't burn anything down. I don't damage people's property or their livelihoods and I don't threaten them. All I do is ask them to change their mind. Ash, I want your take on this. I mean, this is... I was sort of shocked at how extreme this was. You know, this is people who are, obviously we don't know, it's, it's unconfirmed who this is, but Chris Packham seems to believe and has very good reason to believe that this is people who are opposed to his environmental campaigning, including you know, increasing regulation when it comes to shooting birds, for example. There's lots of farmers who've been, who've been pissed off by the campaign. But yeah, I mean, a, a Land Rover getting blown up outside his house. It's really just dreadful and horrifying. And I don't think that Chris Packham is being alarmist or fishing for sympathy when he's saying, well, how is this going to escalate? Is this going to end up with me dead or a member of my family killed or badly hurt? Like, where is this going to stop? And unfortunately, there has been a great deal of violence and conflict when it comes to the issue of environmental campaigning, particularly in the British countryside. You've seen that with assaults and abuse of hunt saboteurs. There's something really nasty about those who want to defend blood sport, killing animals for fun because it's like a tradition or whatever in the countryside. Um, so I think that, yeah, Chris Packham's got a real cause for concern. I hope that he's receiving as much protection as anyone can get in this kind of situation. And one thing which maybe I'd like to end my comments on is noting that despite this campaign of intimidation and harassment, which, as he said, has been going on for years, we don't really hear about it being worked into the conversation around free speech, intimidation, and harassment. So somebody like Chris Packham, who has genuine cause to fear for their safety, their car has just been blown up outside their home, uh, doesn't seem to be the subject of like a big celebrity blue tick campaign of solidarity online. You know, I'm not seeing evidence being presented to parliament i'm not seeing you know the times going out and loads of columns being written by you know janice turner or matthew dancona and all these kinds of people it's just sort of seen as like a weird side issue a weird fringe issue but it seems to be a very direct example of somebody's free speech being attacked and an attempt to suppress it through a campaign of sustained intimidation and harassment i do feel like Obviously, it's a hypothetical, but I, I do feel like if there was, for example, one of these gender-critical feminists who we hear so much from about cancel culture, if there was dead animals appearing on their front doorstep, which would obviously be a completely horrific, horrible, yeah. no one should get dead animals on their doorstep, by the way. But I imagine if that was happening, that would provoke far more Times comment pieces and sort of big spreads in the Sunday Times than 
this happening to Chris Packham because it's yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely well solidarity with with Chris Packham and let's hope the bastards get caught I want to go to a couple of comments Saul with a fiver big solidarity with Seamus Milne Carrie Murphy Georgie Robinson Robertson sorry Harry Habel and Laura Murray the latest targets of the Labour right leadership um, that's an important reference to a story which has just broken on Labour list concerning the Labour leaks as you'll know we covered the Labour leaks extensively they showed you know the real the bullying that was going on within the Labour Party what Many people consider racism targeted against black left-wing MPs and then also, you know, the sitting on anti-Semitism complaints done by right-wing bureaucrats. And I think it's fairly corrupt, actually, what was what was revealed in there, because it is people who were who had a job to try and get the Labour Party elected and they clearly were more interested in doing something else. That was revealed. Left-wing members of the Labour Party were outraged. And I suppose, I mean, any member should have been outraged who, who cares about Labour winning elections. The response of the leadership was to start the Ford report, which has now, you know, seems to have, have been mothballed, and to try and target the people who wrote it and or leaked it. We don't know who wrote it and or leaked it, but they are now um, naming five people who they believe to be responsible. I've just read you names there. Um, the response from these five is to say there is no evidence of this. The Labour Party has admitted that any suspicions are all anecdotal. But Labour want to now put these five names out. But, I mean, it seems to me so as to scapegoat them because Labour has no interest whatsoever in properly investigating what was revealed in that report. We said at the time in terms of the leak, you know, in an ideal world, some of the names would have been redacted. But I have to say I'm incredibly glad that the information that was in the Labour leaks is now in the public domain. Because if... What had happened was that just got buried and we never read those reports whatsoever in any form. I think that would have been a real travesty in terms of understanding what happened over the past five years. Um, Ash, do you have any comments on this? It did break, break sort of just a couple hours before we went live. Yeah, no, I, I do have some thoughts on this. One, uh, it seems to me that the Labour Party don't really have a leg to stand on. Uh, when there was an attempt by people named within the report to uh, bring charges against, not, sorry, not charges, uh, make a complaint against the Labour Party in court, one of the things that was said by the Labour Party in court was we simply don't have enough evidence to determine who it was who uh, released this report into the public domain. So the fact that now they're considering making, you know, five named accusations seems to be a real uh, vault fast from what they'd been saying before. And then I just want to, you know, talk about what was detailed within the report and the failure of the Labour Party to actually respond to it in any meaningful way. What was detailed in that report was that there was a concerted campaign of factional wrecking, that there was misuse of party resources in order to essentially throw a general election and stop Jeremy Corbyn from becoming Prime Minister, and that there was also a culture of bullying and really directed nastiness at black Labour MPs on the part of Labour Party staffers, as well as documented incidences of Islamophobia. Now, the Ford report uh, was supposed to be 
the kind of independent investigation which could go through some of the claims, determine what's true, uh, and then be released. That's been kicked into the long grass. So it's wild to me that the Labour Party clearly doesn't want to have any more conversations about this leaked report to the extent that they've essentially, you know, forgotten about this Ford uh, inquiry. They're like, Ford? Who? Huh? Never heard of him. Um, but are risking dredging all of this up again simply because they want to continue uh, a kind of factional warfare. No wonder they've named Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy, two of the most senior figures in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's operation. It's a concerted attempt to a sort of nail the Corbynite left into a tomb and, you know, add more insult to injury. It's very naked, uh, you know, in my opinion, wrecking and factionalism has got nothing to do either with dealing with what was made public in that report or, in fact, doing the kind of smart comms thing and going, let's just pretend none of this shit ever happened. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty vindictive and, and vicious to me, as has you know most of the operations in the Labour Party since Keir Starmer became leader. I'm sure we'll be going back to stories of people in Labour HQ being bastards uh, in, in many shows to come. As millions of families in Britain struggle with rising bills and fuel shortages, the Prime Minister has fled to a luxury villa in Marbella. Boris Johnson left for the trip in the same week the £20 cut to universal credit kicked into effect. Charities warn that the cut will push 300,000 children into poverty. As well as the timing of the trip, eyebrows have been raised because it appears to have been courtesy of someone to whom Boris Johnson very recently gave a peerage. So that was the headline on the Daily Mail, only here for the peer. Um, it was given to Boris Johnson courtesy of Zach Goldsmith. More on him in one moment. First of all, it does sound like it was a very nice pad, according to the Mirror. The property has its own helipad to make sure VIP holidaymakers can arrive and leave without being seen, as well as two pools and a tennis court. The main house is set on three levels and sleeps 13, while a smaller luxury villa that sleeps up to 10 people and includes five ensuite bedrooms can be rented separately. As I say, the property is owned by Zach Goldsmith. He's the former Tory MP who ran a racist campaign against Sadiq Khan in 20. 16. He was made a peer by Boris Johnson after losing his seat in the 2019 general election. This morning, Kay Burley challenged Tory Minister Damien Hines on the awkward optics of Boris Johnson's break. Do you I accept, though, on any level that the optics are not good when people are turning up the heat and can't really afford it at home and the PM sunning himself on a lounger in Spain? So, look, I, I would come back to, to what I just said. I mean, he, he remains in charge, right? He's the, he's the prime minister. Um, I think it's also right and important, actually. It's actually important for him and his family. It's also important for the rest of us, actually, for the whole country, that, uh, that, 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 that the Prime Minister does get, to, does get to have some family time, does get to have, uh, does get to have a break. It was Damien Hines saying everyone needs a break. Um, unfortunately, he didn't, I, don't, I don't think he commented on Zach Goldsmith. Ash, I want your take on this. Labour sort of taking different lines. I saw there was one person who I think was in the shadow cabinet saying they don't really mind if Boris Johnson takes a holiday. I know Bridget Phillipson has said this is the government going, you know, saying we're out of office at a moment of national crisis because of the shortages, etc. Do you think any any outrage has been committed here? Look, I think that when it comes to the issue of politicians going on holiday, 
it's always kind of opposition fodder. If Labour were in government and the Prime Minister went on holiday, really, no matter what time of year, maybe if it was in August and during the silly season and it had been fairly quiet, there wouldn't be so much outrage. But there usually is some kind of story about it. So Prime Minister's holidays uh, really up to Boris Johnson had to be quite carefully stage managed. So prime ministers wouldn't want to be seen going on a holiday anywhere that nice, uh, anywhere that fancy, preferably not too far afield because that would make you look like you're out of touch with people. Boris Johnson comes along. He's like, fuck it, mustique. Fuck it. Helipad Villa near Marbella. I do not give a shit about you people. I want my nice holiday, my spa treatments, my five-star meals, you know, that's what I'm interested in. And so I think what that speaks to is the degree to which Boris Johnson is almost more of a Berlusconi kind of figure. So the usual standards of accountability have never really seemed to uh, touch him in any way. He's been able to kind of flout the normal rules of reputation management and in a way embrace being kind of rich and obnoxious. So I think in terms of whether or not this is going to be an effective labor attack line, I would say, well, no. Because if it wasn't for Mystique, then why would it be for this? And it kind of seems like an opposition bleating, like, oh, you've left during a crisis. Well, we've been in a state of perpetual crisis really for the last five years. You know, it does feel like you could have said that at any other point uh, since the referendum. Like, this is a really bad time to go on holiday. Perhaps that speaks more to the state of British politics than it does about actual prime minister's decisions. Where I think the outrage is, is, you know, the fact that you've had this, you know, very shady business of who paid for the Mustique trip. And I think there is still some things which are unclear about, well, who paid for the travel when it came to Boris Johnson going to Marbella. And then the other thing is, did you know that Zach Goldsmith was that rich? Because I knew that he was like rich, but I didn't know he was helipad rich. And that just kind of blows my mind that you've got somebody who owns a helipad, who, who, who has this villa that they don't even live in most of the time. And it is bigger than some, you know, blocks of flats that I've lived in. And he was like, yeah, I want to be London mayor. You know, I can, I, I can speak to the people. No one who is that rich has any business being in politics. Just shut the fuck up and enjoy your money in peace over there. He's silly rich in the way that most people who are silly, silly rich at the moment are, which is that his dad was a billionaire. So his dad was a billionaire businessman and financier, James Goldsmith. I suppose they'd say that, you know, maybe they rent out the property, you know, it's just a, they're just, they've just got a, an Airbnb on the side. It just happens to have a helipad. But no, these guys are fucking filthy rich. Apologies. Didn't mean to, didn't mean to swear there. Right. Let's go on to our next story. Red Baron with a fiver. Boris Johnson can act like this because the opposition is so weak. We should introduce rank choice voting ASAP. Hmm. Interesting. I'd be in favor of rank choice voting. Th that is, so rank choice voting for anyone who's unaware, if I'm getting this correct, is that instead of just voting Labour or Tory, you know, you don't just get one vote in your elections, you get two. So you can vote with your heart, number one, and then you vote sort of very practically in number two. So if you're in a constituency where it's a Labour-Tory marginal, but you want the Greens, you can say Labour one, sorry, Greens one, Labour two, and that will give those third parties a chance because no one will be terrified to vote for them anymore if they live in marginals. Final story. The Metropolitan Police have confirmed they will not be taking further action with regard allegations of sexual assault levelled at Prince Andrew. 
The investigation into Andrew, which was reopened in August, concerned claims made by Virginia Giuffray. She is currently lodging a civil case against the prince in New York. Giuffray claims that convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein and his confidant Ghislaine Maxwell forced her to have sex with Andrew on multiple occasions when she was 17. One of those assaults, according to Giuffray, was at the London home of Ghislaine Maxwell. Prince Andrew, for his part, denies all the allegations. Announcing their decision, the Metropolitan Police said the following. As a matter of procedure, Metropolitan Police Service officers reviewed a document released on August 2021 as part of a US civil action. This review has concluded and we are taking no further action. Ash, I presume Prince Andrew will take this as some sort of vindication. The Met Police have said we don't have enough evidence to investigate what might have happened within our jurisdiction. Do you think it would be too premature for him to breathe a sigh of relief, though? Well, look, realistically, the Metropolitan Police was never going to come to any other decision. It would be unprecedented to, uh, you know, say that, look, we are actively investigating a senior royal for a sexual offence um, and for upholding what has been put in a civil claim outside of UK jurisdiction. It really would be unprecedented. The Metropolitan Police, it's a political beast as well as part of the criminal justice system and maintains its own power and authority through proximity to other parts of the establishment and keeping them on side. So they were never going to do anything different. But this doesn't mean that Prince Andrew is in the clear by any stretch of the imagination. One, him and his lawyers still have until the 29th of October to respond to uh, Virginia Giuffre's suit. Two, one of the things that they're banking on is that there will be something in the 2009 settlement between Giuffrey and Epstein, which would uh, insulate Prince Andrew or could be interpreted to insulate him uh, from any civil claim pertaining to Giuffrey and Epstein. Um, and even if, say, the civil claim is upheld, even if the kind of Hail Mary chance of hoping for a rescue by some detail that's in this Epstein Giuffre suit, uh, they would then have to work out how they would either uh, recover damages, you know, impose whatever penalty the court came up with in the US. And then still, that's not the same thing as a criminal action. So I think that what is more meaningful here is the amount of negative publicity uh, that this ongoing case is attracting. According to a piece which came out in the Sunday Times, other senior royals, most notably Prince Charles and Prince William, consider Prince Andrew a liability. They don't think that he his judgment is good. They seem as a net negative for the institution and resilience of the monarchy. Just so happens that Prince Andrew enjoys an awful lot of support from his mother, the Queen, who is said to be, you know, financially supporting him at this time and, you know, personally financing uh, his defense against the claims brought by Virginia Giuffrey. But the monarchy is headed for a crisis of legitimacy when the Queen does die. And that's why Charles and William are looking over their shoulders and going, well, how how much can we afford to be seen to be closing ranks around Andrew when this guy is, you know, clearly an idiot? You know, clearly his judgment can't be trusted. We saw that with the Emily Maitlis Newsnight interview. And increasing sections of the public are turning against him because they find that the claims which are brought by Virginia Giuffre are completely credible. 
I'm glad you brought up the role of the Queen in this because it, it links to the next clip I want to show, which involves, I think, or puts on show anyway, how how ridiculously we discuss this in Britain, or how how ridiculously elites discuss this whole issue in Britain. This was Nick Ferrari on Question Time speaking last week in response to a question about whether Prince Andrew should go to the USA to face cross-examination. This is how I'm going to sum it up. Uh, the Queen has been through the most trying period of her life, I would imagine. Not that long ago, she lost her consort of goodness knows how many decades. She's also got the issues of one of her grandsons living in California, which we are also going to park there. I just think it's a terrible shame that as this woman continues to serve in a way that I don't know we will ever see again in this country, that she is blighted by problems such as this. So whether it takes him to go to New York, to Washington, to do a video link, whatever it takes to put this out of the way, to let the Queen power on and do the job that I think she happens to do particularly well, I would urge him to do that. Okay. I, I sort of introduced that in terms of the ridiculous way that elites discuss this issue, which, by the way, is a serious allegation about sexual assault, right, of someone who has been allegedly trafficked. Really, really serious issue. And Nick Ferrari gives that speech, which I think completely belittles the issue because he makes it all about the how relaxed the Queen can be. You know, the, the real victim here is the Queen, who, as Ash said, gave loads of support to Prince Andrew. She hasn't exactly showered herself in glory in this situation. But not only did he say something to my mind, completely ridiculous, but the audience lapped it up. Everyone in the audience really clapped for Nick Ferrari there. And there were periods in that same episode, we actually showed them on, on Friday in relation to the cut to universal credit, where there were lots of people who, were, who had quite progressive views in that audience, but still they thought the real victim of all of this was the Queen. Ash, did you find that clip as depressing as I did? Yeah, ab absolutely depressing. And it's also these contortions to defend uh, the Queen as a sovereign and be really invested in this kind of, you know, decades in the making myth, which has become layered and entwined with her. So she's not just the head of state. She's not just this constitutional figure, but there's something about her, which is like the grandmother of a nation. So it's inviting us to feel this very familial sense of attachment to what is essentially a nonagenarian aristocrat and, you know, appealing to her experience of grief, which I'm sure was absolutely devastating, just as it would be for anyone else. And I think in quite a cynical way, leveraging that to draw attention away from the fact that, well, maybe if it turns out that Prince Andrew did all the things that Virginia Giuffre is alleging that he did, that he committed a sex offence, uh, that the victim in question was a victim of sex trafficking at 17 years old at the time, that maybe if he did do those things, they were done because of his role as a senior member of the royal family. The levels of impunity and power and access that grants him and not in spite of it. So it's a way, I think, of you know trying to tug on the heartstrings and distract from the fact that maybe Prince Andrew's position as a royal wouldn't be incidental to what's been alleged to have happened, but would have been central to it. I think that's uh, the big issue, both with Andrew and Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, which is that the story is always, were they able to get away with stuff because they were powerful or did they do it, you know, because they were powerful? Was that access because they were powerful? I mean, who knows? Uh, that case will be very interesting to view. Obviously, Jeffrey Epstein didn't quite make it that far. Um, he died suspiciously in prison. 
Um, I think 50-50, did he kill himself? Did he, actually, less than 50, come on. 60%, 70%, they killed him. 30%, he killed himself. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, let's see if she makes it that far. Ash, any final thoughts before we, 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 we head off tonight? Well, maybe I would like to draw our viewers' attention to the special COP26 podcast series, which we just announced today called Planet B. Um, so our very own Dahlia has been very involved with putting it together. So a real treat. Keep your eyes out for that. And make sure you get your mitts on it when it's out for real, for real. Ash, um, it was fabulous as ever speaking to you on this Monday evening. I loved it. You know I love these Monday evenings, Michael. They make me feel happy to be alive. I do too. They're all like, well, I, I can't say they're all like I, I, I look forward to because I also look forward to Wednesday with Dahlia Gabriel and Friday with Aaron <laughs> Bastani. And on that note, we will be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.